You can be seated. <clears throat> you know, the Bible talks about, while you're turning to Daniel chapter number 1, the Bible talks about in the book of Psalms, chapter 137, it says that when they were carried away into captivity by the Babylonians, that the people that carried them away in captivity required of them, or as we would say today, asked of them, to sing a song of what they called mirth, M-I-R-T-H. I don't know about y'all, but I don't know if I've ever sang any songs of mirth before, but sing songs of worth, right? And y'all didn't think it was worth anything, but hopefully the Lord did. <clears throat> but the songs of mirth, what it was talking about is they said also, sing us one of those songs of Zion. But the Bible says that while they were being carried away into captivity, that they hung their harps, the stringed instruments, in the willow trees. And when they hung their harps in the willow trees, it was kind of like, Brother Ronnie, that they were just kind of done. They were like, we're, we're being brought out of our own country. We're taken away into slavery and it's just not worth it. And they hung their harps on the willows. And it's kind of like they sit by the bank there of the rivers. And those people, the Babylonians that were carrying them away, they said, sing us one of your songs of Zion. Now, some people think that they said, you know, sing it because they were mocking them and making fun because, you know, they said, you know, why aren't you singing now, now that you're going away into captivity? I don't think it's that way. I think that even the world sometimes is captivated by some of our gospel songs. They're captivated by the lyrics of them all. When the song by Mercy Me, Bart Miller came out, I can only imagine. You saw how the world kind of just ran to that. And it's played on gospel stations and secular stations. And they just ran to it because I think deep down people really want to understand spiritual things, but yet they hold on to their sin so much that they can't understand it. And I think those Babylonians knew that when those people, the Israelites, would sing their songs and <coughs> excuse me, would play the harps to sing them, they were captivated by it. And they said, sing us one of those songs of Zion. And you know what the, the Israelites said that were in captivity? They said, how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? In other words, they said, how... How can we be motivated to sing out something when we're being carried away into slavery? When we're being carried away into captivity? And it's kind of like this. The Israelites were actually saying this. How can we sing God's songs when we are suffering from our own sins? That's what was realized by those Israelites. It's hard to sing for the Lord whenever you're in sin. When you're in sin, you don't want to sing the songs of Zion because the songs stir up the heart so much that conviction comes in. And so it's hard to sing the Lord's song, not just in a strange land, but when you're actually joined yourself to a citizen of that land and you're now living like the Babylonian. The reason that Daniel is brought out and the reason that some of the things we're going to be talking about is that God said that you as the children of Israel have become so sinful that you are actually worse than the Amorites and the Hittites that dwelt in this land before you whose gods I drove out of the land. He said you have become so captivated with other nations and culture and sin that you wanted to be popular more than you wanted to be righteous and now it's hard for you to sing not because you're in Babylon or being carried away. It's hard for you to sing because when you're in sin you don't really feel like singing, right? But the Bible says that in the New Testament he that's merry, let him sing. 
Amen. In other words, he whose sins are forgiven, let him be joyous and let him be happy and excited. That's why you hear sometimes among the church people, they get to singing and all of a sudden, before long, they may sing it a little louder. Some people may add an amen in there every now and then. Or, or Brandon or Andrew will go, hey, let's sing that verse one more time. You know, uh, second verse, same as the first, John Jacob Jingle Hammerschmidt, right? They'll get excited and they'll do that and they'll sing those songs again. And man, I can remember going to church as a young I'm not an old man. Please don't take it that way. I am. People have asked me, how do I get the two white stripes in my beard? And I was like, you did it. And um, my kids did it, right? But uh, if I had hair, I I wouldn't have any two white stripes right here. But they'd probably be back here, Craig. You know, I'd have two two of those white stripes back there. But people go, well, in the old times, people would get excited and they would sing those songs. I I can't tell you how many times that we would just break out and, oh, how I love Jesus. That we would just sing those songs, and just like the song that we sung just now, that it's one of those songs that say, I found freedom, finding it all in Him. I couldn't find it in all the other things. I didn't get healing, but I found it in Him, amen? So if you would, let's look at Daniel. We're going to look at Daniel chapter number 1, and uh, we're going to be talking today about our faithful God in the worst times. And if there's ever a theme that is going to go through the whole entire book of Daniel, it is these words right here, our faithful God in the worst times ever. This was one of the worst times for Israel ever. Until the day of tribulation comes and the hour of tribulation comes, until the day of desolation that Jesus spoke about in Matthew 24, that Luke spoke about, that Daniel spoke about, until that day comes, this is Israel's worst day they had ever had. And you go, Brother Steve, even compared to how many Jews were killed during the Holocaust and all of these things, absolutely, this was the worst day for Israel. Ask any Jewish person by blood, ask any rabbi, look in any Mishnah or the Torah, look in any of their books called traditional books, the Haggadah or anything, not Haggadah, but Haggadah, you look in those books, they'll tell you that this is one of the worst times for Israel because this was actually the time that they ceased to be a nation. Now, I know that they are recognized now as a state. I know that in 1948 that became true. They were recognized as that. I know that they had an eight-day war. I know that they had all of these things. I know the sixth of Av. I know the stuff about history, and I know their celebration times, but they still are not complete Israel yet. There's a move now in Israel. It happened probably about two years before we went to Israel, so it's probably been about 15 to 17 years ago, and this move is called the Zionist movement. Uh, the airport there in Tel Aviv, Israel, is named Ben-Gurion Airport, and it's named after the, the great movement of the, the greatest Zionist that they called. Um, and what that Zionist movement is, is that they're calling all Jewish people by blood back to Israel. They're calling them back. They may think, Brother Andrew, that they're doing that because they think it's a good idea, but we understand that they're doing that because Scripture tells us that the fulfillment of the prophecy is that Israel will come Come back. Ezekiel 37 says that the dry bones in that valley will stand again, an exceeding great army. God's calling the Jewish people back. Uh, my God, her name was Nicola. Uh, she was not from Israel, but she's blood-born Jewish, and she was from Europe. 
and she had come back because of the Zionist movement. Her mother was a Kohathite. You say, what is a Kohathite? If you study Old Testament and the book of Leviticus, you would understand that the Kohathites were a part or a branch of the Levitical tribe, the tribe of Levi, and they were the ones responsible for keeping the priesthood of Israel intact, making sure that the next priest that was set to sit on the throne would be ready. They already have all of those records. They understand through the bloodline, through lineages, and you say, Brother Steve, I just don't believe that. Look at Matthew chapter number 1, and you don't got to turn there. If you wanted to write it in your Daniel study, you could. It's a genealogy of this one begot this one and begot this one and begot this one. Look in the book of Luke, begot and begot and begot. Look in the book of Genesis, this one begot and begot and begot. And you go, man, that's boring. It's not boring to a Jewish or an Israelite because it's showing them from which tribe they are. It's showing them their pride in being from that. Even Paul himself said that he was from the tribe of Benjamin. You remember? We talked about Jesus Christ being from those tribes. We talked about the lineage that came down through there and how an amazing thing that put it all together that Jesus on certain half and on other half, on Joseph's side, but on Mary's side, he was born all of the king of Judah, but not only that, but as of the tribe of Levi, and therefore that makes the scriptures correct when Paul says he is both king and priest. Amen. So he is the high priest and he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And when you get into this book, you go, how can we walk with God in the worst times? How can we walk with God in the days that we live? We're going to look at this book, and you're going to find out that even some of these things are going to be very similar or familiar to what we're actually going through today. We're going to talk about men in there by the name of Mishael, Azariah, Hananiah. Uh, You probably know them better by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but uh, their true names and Hebrew names are not that. And you're going to hear about Daniel, whose name is then changed to Belteshazzar, but his name is Daniel, meaning that God is judge. We're going to talk about all of that, but I want to get this into you. I have to drill this into you. It's our faithful God. This book is titled Daniel because it is from the prophet's mouth, Daniel. But this book is not about Daniel. It's not about three Hebrew boys. It's not about overcoming a lion's den. It's not about a wonderful prophecy that will actually take place and will happen to Israel that portionally has been fulfilled in some ways in 167 B.C., but yet it will be absolutely fulfilled when the Antichrist comes to rule. This book is not about people It is about our faithful God in the most worst times that we could live. So looking at Daniel chapter number 1, I want you to look with me at verse number 1, and then we're going to go and we'll give you a little bit of introduction and stuff like that. And so I'm excited this morning, so Patty just has to bear with me and whoever's running that back there because I'll be all over the place. The Bible says, look in verse number one, in the third year of the king, uh, excuse me, in the third year of the reign of uh, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And I want you to kind of hold out right there for just a moment. And I want you to think about, all right, we're getting into this kind of time frame. And when we get into this time frame, you're going to say, well, I, I really don't understand. I don't actually know 
uh, how we're going to walk through this. Uh, what does the time frame mean? What does it matter if it's the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim or not? These things are very detailed, and God wants you to see these things and not skip over these first verses because if you do, then you will understand how history and time actually came into place, and you will under, you'll misunderstand God. You remember last Sunday I told you what was on the scene at the world at this time. You had the Syrians or the Assyrians, the Ninevites, who were trying to rule. You had the Egyptians who were also in a great power, world power. They were on the stage trying to be the king of the hill. And then you had this group of people that your Bible's going to call today the, the Chaldeans, uh, what we know as the Babylonians, because we may understand the Chaldeans and moving into that, but this all started not in Daniel chapter 1. It didn't start in Jeremiah chapter 25 that we'll read in a moment. This all started with the Babylonians back in Genesis chapter number 10 at the Tower of Babel and Nimrod and all of these things. And if you read your Bible, you'll understand that God is always God. There's no doubt that God is God and that he has a son, Jesus Christ. His son was here in the beginning. It wasn't when Mary had a son that God had a son. God always had a son, and his name is Jesus. He's here in Genesis chapter 1, verse number 1. And the Holy Spirit is also found in Genesis chapter number 1 when the Bible says the Spirit of God hovered or brooded all right, and flapped its wings over the face of the deep. I'll scoot back a little bit. But when you look at all of the Scripture, God is always God. But since sin, Satan has also been the great deceiver. And since the Tower of Babel, and since that time, God did something then that he separated their languages and separated their spaces, and they went out. And then all of a sudden, since then, nations began to come up on the scene, and they come up to rise as empires. And, and the empire of Babylon begins way back when, but it's kind of cool in the Scriptures if you study the Word, Brother Matt. It's like they're, they're lurking in the background. They're like a lion that's setting back, waiting for other kingdoms to do stuff, and then when they come up, and Amorites, and Hittites, and Jebusites, and, and even bugs and parasites, when they come up, it was like the Babylonians are sitting in the background going, I'm going to take that, I'm going to take that, I'm going to get that, I'm going to take everything that they do, and I'm going to put it in my blender, and I'm going to be the greatest world power ever. Did you know that from Genesis chapter number 10, you read Babylon all through Scripture, all the way to Revelation chapter number 18, when they are finally destroyed? destroyed all through the scripture there is this systematic kind of thing of a Babylon or a Babylonish understanding even to where the Israelites they loved it Andrew remember the man by the name of Achan uh, I think that Billy Ray Cyrus wrote a song about him Achan breaking heart right he Achan <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I thought it was wah, 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 wah. Uh, If Wes was on the drums, he would have given me the bloomch. But Achan was the one that did what? He was so overwhelmed with what the Babylonian people had that he took it, Brother Bo, and he dug a hole in his tent and he buried it and he took it out and put on the Babylonian garment. Looked at himself, right? And he held the, the gold or the monies in his hands and thought, what a wonderful thing. But he brought the whole nation of Israel into sin. They started losing battles because sin was in the midst of the camp. And so if you look at all of this, Hezekiah, 
uh, around this time was reigning in, as king, as, as, as Hezekiah was king first. Hezekiah moved into this revival fashion, Brother Brian. He was a guy that when he come in, he set the precedence for revival in Israel. He's the one that done away with false gods and moved into all of these things. But he had a son. His son's name was Manasseh. Manasseh was a king of Israel or king of Judah that he lasted for 55 years, the longest running king in all of Israel, and he was the most evil king that Israel ever had. He was so evil that everything his father Hezekiah did, he went and did the absolute opposite. He went and reinstated worship. He, he, he instated Baal worship. Not, not Baals like this, but we know that false god, B-A-A-L. He instated that worship again to the point that he even took his own sons and he caused them, as the scripture says, to pass through the fire. What it means is, is he took his children, Crystal, his boys, and he laid them in the bosom of a god by the name of Moloch in the valley of Hinnom. And when he laid them in that bosom, they would begin a fire in the bosom or in the chest of that false god, that brass false god, and when they would lay them in the hands of that god, it would literally burn those babies alive as they would sear them and burn them up in the hands of the Molech god. And God said that was so evil, and he said Manasseh was so wrong that you know what he did? He caused him to be taken away captive by the Assyrians. The Assyrians come in and did him like a hog. They put put a hook in his lip or through his nose. And they let him out by a chain, being drug around by his lip or by his nose, right? And they put a hitch on him is what they did. And then they took him away, and he was so burdened about what he did that the rest of the years of Manasseh, he tried to come back and to fix it all. But let me say something to you, especially parents, before we get into this study. This is a side note, so this doesn't count in the time frame of the message. Okay? Whenever I do this, it means we have a TV timeout. But let me share something with you. What you do every single day is going to affect your children. And even when you repent and you try to turn over all of those things, some of them will still be affected. And Manasseh's son, Ammon, was still affected. When Manasseh died, his son Ammon came on the scene as king, and he took everything that his father did, and he intensified it, and was still just as wicked. But thanks be to the Lord that the word of God, when it comes to anyone, change can be broken in people's families' lives. Change can be broken into the, play, into the fact that absolute people who were sinful can have children and they can be touched by the word of God and be totally changed, amen, because this man, Anna had a son, and his name was Josiah. Josiah, we talked about, did what was right in the sight of God, but what my point is, is not to preach last Sunday's message, but for about 500 years, around Around 490 years, the children of Israel lived without the word of God. They lived in their own way. They came into the land of Israel as they conquered all these evil people. And when they took and they didn't even, listen, the Bible says they didn't even build houses. He says, I've given you houses that you built not. 
He said, I've given you vineyards that you planted not. You remember that scripture? I've done all of these things, and you've done nothing for it, Israel. I was the one that fought for you against the Amorites, the Canaanites, and all of these other people. And I give you all of these things by my gracious hand, and you have now turned, and you've become worse than they. So for about 490 years, 500, about 500 years, 490 years, the children of Israel were told by God, when you get into the land of promise, you are to go in there and you are to plant. And every single year, Pop, they were supposed to go through and they were supposed to give blessing to God. And as they gave blessing to God, every seventh year they were to let that land rest. It was so good that God said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Don't you like it when God says, I tell you what I'm going to do? He says, I tell you what I'm going to do. In the sixth year, I'm going to give you a double bounty of crops. Brandon, wouldn't you like to have a double? Wouldn't you like this to be your sixth year in planting strawberries? A double bounty this year. But it wasn't to hoard it all up and to take it all, but it was to save because you were not supposed to plant on the seventh year. It was Jewish law. You were supposed to let that year be a Sabbath of years and to let the land rest and God said for all these years you didn't do that and God says you know what you're going to pay it back you're going to pay it back let me share something with you about faith faith starts small so small that brother Ricky it says even a grain of mustard seed you could say to the mountain be moved and cast into the sea and for most Christians today faith is bigger than this church building faith in giving tithe and offering to the Lord is small in the sight of God. But so many people that love money, that's the biggest problem that they have. And let me say something to you. When you begin to be a faithful giver to God's kingdom work in tithe and giving what belongs to him, as the New Testament says also, to bring into the storehouse of God on the first day of the week, that is faith. And God looks at small steps of faith in our lives and it doesn't have to be this huge amount it's just got to be faithful in giving God first crops of what you what he has blessed you with and so therefore faith begins and Daniel begins in that way listen the Hebrew boys begin in that way and when we move into this study we're going to see that steps of faith have to take place it's like faith is built up as almost if, if you're building a shield up and so for 490 years they did evil, and the Bible says that God said you're going to pay it back. See, listen to me. Right in the top of your notes over there like I did, God warned Israel. God didn't come in there and just kind of take things over and never gave them a warning at all or anything. The Bible says that God warned Israel. And I'm going to read it to you, but if you would, before I read it, write down that scripture reference, Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 1 through 11. If you want to, just write Jeremiah 25 and just go read the whole chapter. But I want you to listen to how God warned them. The Bible says in verse number 1, The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. <clears throat> that was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon the which Jeremiah the prophet spake unto all the people of Judah and to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, From the thirteenth year of Josiah, the, king of, uh, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, it says, Even unto this day, that is the three and twentieth year, the word of the Lord hath come unto me. And I have spoken unto you, rising early and speaking, Look, but you have not hearkened. 
And the Lord hath sent unto you all his servants in the prophets, or the prophets rising early and sending them. But you have not hearkened nor inclined your ear to hear. You see what he says? He says, God says, I didn't wait till the last minute to tell you these things. God says, I didn't wait till the 489th year in order to warn you about what would happen to you if you disobeyed me. Before, Brother Brian, they went into the land of Israel, he told them as they were going into Israel that if you come into this land and you disobey me and you worship other gods, I will bring other nations in that will destroy you. He warned them before they stepped in. The same way that God, that our God is, in the Garden of Eden, he laid out the rules for Adam and Eve, not just days before they sinned, but when he was created, you can have of all the trees, of the fruit of the trees of the garden, except for the one that's in the middle. Well, why can't we have the one in the middle? And God says, because this doesn't belong to you, I'm leasing it to you, son, and it belongs to me, you're going to be obedient unto me. You say, well, brother, see, seems like God was trying to trip him up. No. No, he was giving him small steps of what? Faith. Adam had to have faith in God to know that I will not eat of that tree and God will supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory and I'll stay away from that because I don't want to be disobedient. And looking at this scripture, he says, you have not hearkened, I sent them early and you not even, listen, you've not even leaned your ear in to hear. And listen what he says. They said, Turn ye again now, everyone, from his evil way and from the evil of your doings, and dwell in the land that the Lord hath given unto you and to your fathers forever and ever. And go not after other gods and serve them and to worship them, and provoke me not to anger with the works of your hands, and I will do you no hurt. Yet ye have not hearkened unto me, saith the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own hurt. He was talking about you've even taken your children and you've sacrificed them to false gods. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you've not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, saith the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Brother Craig, he even pointed out who the king's name is. He said, I'll take Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And here's a very difficult scripture to understand. If you, if, I want you to see this. He said, my servant. This didn't mean that Nebuchadnezzar was serving the Lord in faith or in grace or in salvation at all, Brother Mitch. What God is saying right here, that listen, everything belongs to me. Remember when Bill came into Theo's room and was laying down the law and he told Theo Huxtable that none of this stuff belongs to you? It all belongs to me. Do you remember all of that? The same way that I've done my children. You know, they, they wanna, if they wanted to lock on their door, I told them they'd have to buy their own house. Right? It's my room. I'm lending it to you, and you can stay here as long as you want, and we'll keep your edge of the table over here and keep your plate. But when you're out, we're sawing that part of the table off, and I, I'm turning the, the, your bedroom into an aquarium. Right? Listen, he says, he belongs to me. And what the scripture says in Romans chapter 9, that God will do whatever he pleases, it means this. Because of their disobedience, the children of Israel, God said, I'm going to let you have what you think you've always wanted. If you want the ways of Satan, then I'm going to allow Satan's leader, Nebuchadnezzar, listen, which is still under my control. I can do with him whatever I want. He said, Look, if God wanted to snap his fingers like... Uh, 
Thanos and get rid of him, right? He could have done that. If God wanted just to look down and stomp his little head, he could have killed Nebuchadnezzar at any time. But what was going on is a greater plan, and God has a greater plan. And I can't wait to get to the end of this sermon and show you that. I'm going to have to send Andrew to the back to get my inhaler. Listen, the Bible says that he is going to come in, my sir, and he will bring them against this land and against the inhabitants thereof and against all these nations round about and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment and a hissing. You say, what is a hissing? What it means is, is when people walk by and see their utter destruction, that they will go... It's a hissing against them. They will mock and they will laugh and they will be, what does he say? A perpetual desolation. It says, Moreover, I will take them from the voice from them the voice of mirth. Well, isn't that a kawinky dinky? Psalms 137, they said, How could we sing a song of mirth or a song of Zion? When God Himself because of his oppressing judgment hand on me, I can't find the words to sing because it's almost as if my song of mirth is gone because the heaviness of God. David said it. David said in the Psalms, he said, I lay upon my bed and groan. He said, my eyes have wept so much that I can't even weep anymore. He said, it's like God's heavy hand on me that's crushing me and breaking my bones. And let me say something to you Christians. If you feel that way because you sin. Get on your face before God and clap and say, thank you, Lord. I'm telling you, you ought to thank him that you feel that way because he chastens and chastises those that he loves. If it doesn't bother you to go out here and blurt the Lord's name in vain or to do all these sinful things and, and do this stuff, having an affair and getting drunk and doing it, if that doesn't bother you and there's no conviction at all, you being a Christian, let me say something to you. Something may be missing, and it's not God. He says they'll take away the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride, the song or the sound of the millstones. There'll be no work in the, in the fields, the light of the candle. And it says, and this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon. Look here, 70 years. God says you're going to pay it back. God warned them. For 490 years... You have been sinful. You have robbed me of 70 Sabbath years. You're going to pay it back. Israel, how are you going to pay it back? You're going to be in captivity, and you're going to return that payment 70 years of captivity. God, God, it, it, it's one of these things, and this is what Christians say. Please listen to me, the whole phrase, before you write a note or, or get some kind of snippet out of it. People go, well, God forgets. No, when you confess God forgives and forgets your sin. Cast as far as the east and west. Don't you like the scripture? It doesn't say cast as far as the north to south. You know why? Because if you go north on this earth, you're going to eventually be going south. But if you go east, you can go as far east as you want to, and you're going to keep going east and be going east and be going east and be going. But if you go west, you're going to keep going west. The Bible says he'll cast your sins as far as the east is to the west, never to be brought up into the sea of forgetfulness when you confess sin. Unconfessed sin, let me share something with you. God does not forget it. God does not go, well, you know what, let's sweep that over here under the rug. And before long, you're walking through the house like this because you're walking over mounds of sin. No, God doesn't forget that. If it's confessed and forgiveness is asked and grace is applied, yes, your sins will not be brought up thanks to Jesus at Calvary. Aren't you all excited? 
Aren't y'all excited? Listen, now we're going to enter the book of Daniel. And I know you're thinking, you're not getting chapter 1. We're going to get chapter 1. We're going we're to get it. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to be here. We're going to get it. Look what he says in verse number 1. It says in Daniel chapter 1, verse number 1. And I want you to pay attention. I want you to underline these things, highlight them, do whatever. Take your own notes. That's fine. But I hope you'd hear some of these things I'm saying. Daniel chapter 1 says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem, and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar. Right? Everybody knows what a Shiner is, don't you? That's when you got popped in the eye when you were young. You got that Shiner on your eye, right? Uh, Shinar is Babylon. If you want to write in your notes there, it, it's the land of Babylon. It says that they brought him to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. De, uh, excuse me, Jeremiah prophesied about this. Zephaniah prophesied about this. Nahum talked about what was going to happen to Israel. And he said all these things will happen. But look back with me at verse number 1. I want you to know these things because I don't want you to let any devilish uh, deceptor come up to you and try to deceive you on this right here. We read in Jeremiah chapter number 25, verse number 1, that it was in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah. But Daniel says it was in the third year of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. And people automatically go, you see? Your Bible has errors in it. Your Bible is wrong, has mistakes. Even some of you, if you have a different translation today, a New King James or an English Standard Version or even an NIV or anything like that, if you have different versions of stuff, you'll understand that these scriptures are not changed. Sometimes modern translations change things in order to appease certain thought processes. Same way with some of, I'm not even going to go there. I don't have time to do all that. If you want to ask me a question after, I'll help you out on that. But if you look at this, they're both the same in every single one because literally three means three and four means four. And people go, there's problems with the Bible, there's errors, and therefore I don't believe it. And I'm going, it's because you don't believe it, it's because you just don't read it. You don't read it with a heart. You don't read it with trying to find understanding. You're just trying to find problems with it, and there's not a problem with this. Jeremiah said that when he began to set out and all of these things and came in to do that and was going to destroy. He came in and besieged the city and he talked about it would be in the fourth year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. But Daniel says in the third year, the Nebuchadnezzar set out to go to Jerusalem and to besiege it. If you were to write this in your margins right there, and you need to write these things because you're not going to remember it, but Jeremiah chapter number 46. Go home and read Jeremiah chapter number 46 and you'll understand that when Nebi, can we call him Nebi today? Nebuchadnezzar is a little bit long. Let's call him Nebi. When Nebi set out to go and destroy or to besiege Jerusalem as that wonderful Babylonian king that he was, the Bible gives us an understanding that when you come into Jerusalem, you can't come from the Golan Heights side because you're actually going to be trying to come over these hills and come down a hill, and you're going to face the Sea of Galilee, and it's not right to go that way. And it was not right for them to come up from Egypt because they'd had to backtrack and go all all the way around and come up from Egypt and do that. But any armies that will attack, even in the book of Revelation, it says those armies will come from the north. 
It doesn't always mean that Lebanon is the Antichrist ruling. What it means is, is according to the structure and the land layout of Israel, when we went there, if you're going to have a great battle, you're going to come through the valley of Jezreel. You're going to come from that northern side. And Brother Ricky, Nebi set out to come and besiege uh, Israel in that third year is what Daniel said. And as he was coming, he also faced another battle. He faced a battle with the Egyptians that had come out of Egypt, made their way all the way up to a place or land called Carchemish, and there was a huge battle called the Battle of Carchemish, and Nebi took over the Egyptians in that battle. He beat them, and so Jeremiah tells us that by the time that Nebuchadnezzar made it into the land, it was actually the fourth year that he made it into there. So there's not a mistake with the Word of God. You just need to study the Word of God and understand that battles took place and that when people went to overtake nations, they didn't get on AC-130s with 100 or 200 men that were going to paratroop out of that and then they overtook it. No, they came all the way from Babylon and the land of Ur and other places and they came all the way down and they had to hug the river Euphrates and the Tigris. Why? They had a huge army, Brother Craig, that had to be watered. They had horses had to be watered and so they had to hug the water in order to get there and when they came over they battled those people so God's word is good and it's it, it's correct amen aren't you glad praise the Lord listen the Bible says that Daniel and them had to come in and he said it was in this year and he's trying to put all this stuff together it's around 605 BC it's around that time that Nebi came in and began to besiege. And I want you to understand that, that slaves were brought out of Israel in three sets. It kind of happened in a three-session kind of thing. Daniel coming out, and then the total uh, uh, destruction of Israel was around 596, 597, somewhere in that time. But if you look at it, first of all, you would go, who in the world, if you're writing notes, who in the world are these Carchemish or Babylonians. These people coming in, what in the world? So, so stop and think with me just for a moment, and then we're going to go to the next point. Think about being in Israel, and you're just, and every day you attend synagogue on Saturday. You go, and the priest, Brother, Brother Brian, and, and the scribe would stand up, or the Pharisee, and they'd read the Scripture. And you're just normally, you're, you come in and every Saturday you're faithful, you're faithful to go. And you're there and they're reading the word of God and you're thinking, that's awesome. And then you leave and you get in your modern stuff and, and as you go and go back to your places of, of dwelling or home places and you go back and then when you get into your house, there's an idol to Baal, there's, there's an idol to the Amorite gods, there's, there's, a, uh, there, there's, there's temples that's being built and places of worship that's being built. You've got King uh, Manasseh that comes in and brings a false god into the temple of God and all this stuff's going on while you're still trying to worship God every Sabbath day, every Saturday. And then all of a sudden, on the rise... I don't know if it would be uh, MSNBC or Fox News that, that told it all, but all of a sudden you see that empires are rising up. Money and taxations and all these things are taking place, and you're still trying to go to the synagogue every Saturday. But yet all this stuff is happening around you, and you're looking at your friends who are leaving the synagogue, and they're worshiping Baal now. 
You're watching family members as they're going out and as they worshiped Baal and they worshiped Moloch and they worshiped the gods of wine. And what they mean by the gods of wine, Sister Patricia, is where they would go to these temples to get drunk. And they would go to these places of uh, establishment and they would call them by certain names, but yet what it was was master of wine is what they did. And they would, they would be drunk. They were, they were also temples of prostitution. And you're watching the synagogue become slowly saturated with this worldly, ungodly, false idols, and you're seeing people just falling into sin and all of these things. And then one day, this group of people by the name of the Babylonians, who you might have heard Jeremiah the prophet talk about, and you heard uh, Nahum and Zephaniah speak about, but then all of a sudden, one day, Brother Mitch, you can hear the thunderous roar and the beating of the drums and the beating of the shields as these people and this nation is coming over this hill on a conquest of just whipping the Egyptians. You know what I mean? They're like 4-0. And they're coming in and they're just bragging. And all of a sudden they come in and they take all of the children from out of the synagogue. They take all of the children from the home. I know immediately what you men are saying. They ain't getting mine. They did. They got them. They killed you. They come in, and they're saying, you're going with us. Can't you imagine those people going, who in the world would have ever thought that this would happen? Habakkuk last Sunday said, God, this can't be your plan. There's an, you're the everlasting one. You're the holy one. There's no way you would allow an evil, an eviler, right? A, a nation more evil than Israel themselves, that Israel would be like that much of the evil that's in Babylon and then the Chaldeans. There's no, Lord, surely this isn't you, but I'll, but I'll wait to listen from you. God says it is me, and I forewarned you for nearly 500 years. And now all these people say, who in the world? I'm going to tell you something. That's a very familiar scene to what we're going through now. We as Christians in the United States of America have set back for 244 years, nearly 245 years of being what we would call the supreme religion of the United States. We were founded on these values. We believe that. But unless you're blind or deaf, you have to see what's taking place. We come every Sunday and we worship. But look at what's happening all around us. Who in the world, who in the world in this world, in this nation, would have ever thought we would be in this situation where South Korea is actually about to surpass us in evangelism of the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of the world. Where in South Korea they are holding young adult meetings where four, in one meeting two years ago, 400,000 gathered in the name of Jesus. When have we seen that? We didn't even see that in the days of Billy Graham. You know why? Because while we have sat in our churches or synagogues and we worship the Lord, people inside, even the body of Christ, have moved out and began to worship the world more than they're truly worshiping God. Who in the world would have thunk it? Who would have thought that that could ever be? Those Israelites... That's what they were thinking, every one of them. That's why they said, how can we sing God's song when we're under his judgment and his chastisement? Here's the next thing. Where in the world? 
you want to write this down, where in the world? <clears throat> you know what they were probably thinking? I wrote in my notes, where in the world are you taking my children? Where in the world? In chapter number 1, look at verse 3. And the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed <clears throat> and of the princess. And I want you to understand something in King James there. It continues to say children. And I know that in other translations in, the new, in your study notes there, it says young adults. And it's exactly what it is. If you stop and think for a moment, that word there that's in the Hebrew actually talks about not just children like toddlers, but it's talking about young people, young people, young teenagers, and young adults. And we don't really know the age when it happens. Israelites, we know that around age 13, they had the bar mitzvah and, and all of these things. And they become a man of God because they were founded or rooted and grounded in the word of God but so we know that, that at that age they're becoming men and young men so we believe that Daniel was taken away into captivity when he was about 15 or 16 years old about 16 years old here he goes out and as he's traveling out the Bible says in this next verse look what it says children or young men in whom was no blemish look at these words but well-favored and skillful in all wisdom and cunning and knowledge and understanding science and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace and whom they might teach the learning of the tongue of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years, and that at the end thereof they might stand before the king." If you look at this, they have this kind of system. First of all, when, if they were to come in today, and let's say Craig and I and Brian and, and Trey and uh, Andrew are all 16 years old, okay? We, you, Trey, you have a better chance, and Charlie, you have a better chance, but 16 years old. When they come in, I want you to know that they didn't take, as they took all of the children out of Israel, the Bible says that the king came in and told Aspenaz, he said, I want you to get the cream of the crop. We understand that terminology. I want you to get the best. And look at what he says. I want you to get children in whom is no blemish. He said, I want you to get good-looking men. So he would take me, and he would take Craig, and the rest of you guys, he would, no, oh, I can't have them, you know. <laughs> Am I right, Craig? All right. Um, but he would take the good-looking ones, the well-favored, right, well-nourished. I would have went in the nourishment category. Uh, a skillful in all wisdom, cunning in knowledge, understanding science, and had ability to stand in the king's palace. But look at these words, whom they may teach the learning of what? Of the language of the Chaldeans, all this stuff. Babylon, even still today, Jesus told us in the book of Revelation, John on the Isle of Patmos told us this thing. Babylon and Babylonian empire, they had this way and this systematic kind of theology or training to where they were coming in and taking over nations. So, so Babylon had this great system of taking over. And their system that they taught in that, Patty, you go to where it says that, part right there but they had a system of taking over is it not in there okay I didn't put it in there but the system and that they put in there is, is these four steps and I want to show you these four steps okay first of all isolation if you look at this scripture it was isolation number one okay can you go to a blank screen then instead of having that up there or is it hung up okay well we're hung up I'll give you these notes and I'll go slower they started out with isolation the Bible says they took them from their own homeland. 
and they took them to a place that was very unfamiliar to them. They didn't know what was going on. They had no idea what they were fixing to step into. At 15, 16 years old, you got to understand, these Israelite boys and these Israelite children, young men, they didn't, they didn't see all these other things other than the gods that, that were false, that were worshipped in Israel. So they saw glimpses of it. But imagine now, they'd never been out of their places. And as they're led out, the first thing that the Babylonian system wants to do is get you isolated. Let me share something with you. Don't allow yourself to be isolated from the body of Christ. Isolation is like taking a hot coal out of the fire and putting it out on the hearth. And you know what happens? It dwindles out, it goes out, and it loses its flame and its fire. But if you put it back in with the other coals, boom, it can come back. Don't allow yourself to be isolated. And I'm preaching to me more than I'm preaching to you on that. Because I am a person that paints myself in my own corner many times. I have friends that I always say, if you're in the corner, just look across the room because I'm in the other one. And I'm telling you, when you get isolated, that's when Satan loves to work. When Jesus isolated himself into the wilderness, the very first one that came in was Satan. And when we isolate ourselves from family, from friends, from the church, from the house of God, from the word of God, and from prayer, when we move ourselves away from that, the enemy is going to come in and is going to attack you. And if you want to be changed, just allow yourself to be isolated. From all of these things. They do it in a very, very good way. Why? Because they want to change everything that you know is normal. And to change your thought process. Here's the second thing that they do. Indoctrination. They move from isolation. And when they get you isolated, then they move to indoctrination. They pull you aside. Verse number 5 talked about that. <clears throat> Verse number 5 says the whole purpose for finding these good-looking, handsome, bald, with beautiful beard young men, <clears throat> understanding science was to do what? Verse 5, look at it in your notes. It says so that they would nourish them for three years so that they would understand the tongue <clears throat> of the child Chaldeans that they would understand the ways of Babylon. Why? Because to believe how great they were, they had to take over these people into slavery. They were prideful. They wanted to isolate them to learn the ways of what? Pride and flesh. Here's the third thing. And this is what the world does to you, the Babylonian world. They isolate you. They get you to think that you're the only one going through this. They indoctrinate you with their theories, and, their, and they call them facts. And theories are not facts. They're just a theory. But then the third thing is infatuation. Infatuation is probably the most dangerous one. Infatuation is to the point where even in the Garden of Eden, the Bible says that Eve was looking at that fruit, and from what we understand, she possibly was alone when she went out there, isolated, but yet Satan indoctrinated her and told her that, oh, you won't surely die. Surely God won't kill you. If he's a good God, he wouldn't kill you because you just did a little something wrong. And then he brought infatuation into her to where she said she saw the fruit, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and that it was good to be desired. And infatuation is probably one of the most dangerous things for our young people today. Infatuation with the world 
to look like the world, to smell like the world, to dress like the world, to be like the world, and to do all of these things that, well, so-and-so's doing it, Dad, or so-and-so's doing it, Mom, and so-and-so has got all of this stuff, and so-and-so. And what happens is, is that this infatuation of the world is created, and then before long, they love the world so much that they're moved away from God. I'm telling you, it can happen in the pastor's kids. It can happen in the deacon's kids. It can happen in anybody's children because the world wants to do this. Look, it says that they were approved or appointed provisions from the king's table. Can you see this lustful kind of idea? These Israelites didn't eat like that back in Israel. They're eating meat from the king's table and drinking wine from the king's table that they didn't have back in Israel, right? Because God's hand was trying to oppress them, to judge them, but yet... At the king's table, they could get whatever they wanted. I think about that movie, Narnia. You know, the Lion and the Witch and the Wardrobe. And was his Edmund was his name? The little bad kid, Edmund was his name. And, and he wanted the, the Turkish delights or something. It was raspberry-filled, sugar-coated donuts. And I could probably tempt any one of y'all in here today with that. You'd sell your soul. Some of you sell your soul for some of those things. And you wanted those. Little, she said, the little num-nums. You know, is what I think about that evil little guy. He was infatuated with it. And even to the next time when he was going to tell on his brothers and his sisters of who they were and where they were at, he asked for more of them. It's just like us. They were infatuated with all of these things or could have been. And here's the last thing, and this is probably one of the most important too, is now it's installation. They come in, and I wrote those things down so you can remember them easily. Right now, isolate you. They'll indoctrinate you. They infatuate you and cause this false love of worldly things. But then they install you. What happens even in cults today is they do all four of these things. And the last thing is the most dangerous one. Because when you feel isolated, you've opened yourself up, brother. And you've said, no one feels like I do. And then when they come along and they indoctrinate you with their theories, even if you don't believe them yet, and then they infatuate you with all of their possessions, the last thing they do is they install you and they make you feel welcome. And they go, I understand what you mean, that nobody accepts you. I was that way. But I want you to know here, we accept you. We love you. And that's what these Babylonian people did. Nebuchadnezzar, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, he knew what he was doing. He knew how to conquer kingdoms. And the reason that he knew how to do it is because he was driven by Satan. And Satan was doing these things. The best way, write this down, the best way to destroy a nation who serves God is to attack the God they serve. The best way that Satan comes at the United States of America and all other nations who serve God Almighty is to attack the God that they serve. If they can attack, Brother Matt, the God that they serve, and they can begin to make the people who say they serve God question the God they serve, they have now accomplished what Satan did in the Garden of Eden. He made Eve question what God said was true. And I'm telling you, there are universities after universities, businesses after businesses, places and temples and church buildings after church buildings that are doing that very thing to all of our people who are born again and saved at an early age and begin to feel isolated because they suffer a little bit. Then they become infatuated with things of the world. And the next thing you know, you've got some false prophet, John Koresh, all of these other things putting their arm around them, Brother Craig, saying, come on now, drink the Kool-Aid. Drink the Kool-Aid. I'll drink it with you. You are my brother. You 
you are my sister. I have now installed you into what I believe. And you go, what in the world? How would they do this thing? How could people honestly do this? And let's go faster than the other. Here's the whatever number. Who in the world? Who in the world is Daniel? Who in the world is it's Michelle, Azariah, Hananiah. Who are these people? And I'm going to go quick because I know you're ready to get out. I, I love y'all, and I thank y'all for staying. Daniel chapter 1, look at verse number 6. He says, Now among these children that there was of Judah, there was Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah, unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names, for he gave unto Daniel the name Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah he gave the name Shadrach, unto the Michelle he gave the name Meshach, unto Azariah he gave the name Abednego. If you look at these names, I'm going to put these up here kind of quick and talk through them, so we'll go. Uh, they had some meaningful names. These Hebrew boys had something given to them, Brother Craig, when they were young that helped them to remember their stand in God. Daniel's Hebrew name meant that God is my judge. Now, doesn't mean, now listen, don't y'all go home, start naming your kids Daniel, and you go, now boy, don't you let nobody judge you because God's your judge. What it means is, is God rules my life. Daniel had a name, Hebrew name, Andrew, that meant God is my ruler. Amen? But the king of Babylon said, we can't have that. We can't have a name such as that. Your name is no longer Daniel. You're going to what? I'm going to install you now into my Chaldean and Babylonian program. We're going to forget all that Jewish stuff that you come up with. And I'm going to give you a new name. Your name from now on is going to be Belteshazzar. Ashpenaz gave this name. Your name's going to be Belteshazzar because when you stand before the king, he doesn't need to know that Jehovah is your judge or El, 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 God is your judge. What he needs to know is Bel protects your life. He changed his name. Then we come to the one, Hananiah. Hananiah, his name in the Hebrew means this, Jehovah is gracious. That mom and dad named that man Hananiah so that the rest of his life, Brother Wes, he would always know God is a gracious God. That when they called his name out, that it would ring in his ear, God's gracious. God is good. That every time that he heard his mama say, Hananiah, come in for supper, it always was a reminder, Hananiah is Hebrew for God is gracious. Ashpenaz says, no, you're not going to be called that. We're going to call you Shadrach. I don't know how you get Shadrach from Hananiah or Belteshazzar from Daniel. But it's because of this. You are of the command of Aku. You are a servant, not of God, Jehovah that's gracious, but of Aku, which is a God of the Babylonians. Then we move to the next one, Mishael. Mishael means this, who is what God is. Can't you? That's good names. I know you're rotten, and I know you can't clap because you're rotten. But you can at least go, mm. You know what I mean? Mm, that's good. Who is what God is? No, that's what I want to be. Change my name, amen? I want to be who God is. I, when people see me, I want people to see God in me. But he says, no, we're going to change your name to Meshach. You're going to be called who is, who Akai, or what Aku is. He changed it all. Then the last one, Azariah, the Lord helps. He says, no, 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 no. Your name is Abednego. You're going to be the servant of of Naboo. Now think about that. I don't know about y'all, but I know what you would probably try to do. You'd probably try to say, ain't no way you're changing my name. You can call me what you want, but my mama called me Daniel, and you call me Daniel. You can call me Danny if you want to, but you ain't going to get away from that, right? Look, they changed the names in order to make them feel accepted and installed now. They made them feel, Brother Mitch, 
inferior because your Jewish understanding is no good. This knowledge of the Chaldeans and the language of the Chaldeans is better than your Jewish Hebrew learning. And we all know that from history. We understand that one of the first forms of writing came out of the Babylonian people. It's called cuneiform. It's where they would take and write on these clay things and they, they actually turned the thing, the, the uh, uh, writing instrument, the scribe instrument, and they would turn it in certain ways and poke holes in this clay to where we know that one of the oldest ones was what was written by King Cyrus that talked about Israel being free after this Babylonian period. Y'all aren't getting it. I'm telling you, y'all got to remember that other stuff that I talk about all the time. I know you're thinking, I've heard you talk about it so much, I can't remember it all. Imagine. What if your kids right now were, they, they were forced to leave this church and you couldn't go with them and they took your boys like Cody and Jacob and Andrew and Charlie and, and Jacob, all these people in here and all of you three and they took them out of here and they were going to make and indoctrinate them and isolate them, get them away from you and isolate them. That they were going to present their knowledge as a greater knowledge than they ever heard their mom and dad. Your mom and daddy's wrong. You're going to treat you with a greater knowledge. What if they're not ready for something like that? And you say, Brother Steve, you think that could happen? It happens every year in May. And then in the fall, it takes place. We have hundreds and thousands of kids that walk across stages receiving high school diplomas in the house of God. Families raising them and teaching them. And then in that next fall, they walk into a place where they are totally isolated, don't know very many people, if any at all. They have professors that try to teach them that they are smarter than everything, that they know more than God himself, and therefore everything you've ever learned is wrong, and they try to do that. And then they do what? They install them into uh, sororities and all of these other things and make them feel welcome. And then before long, your kids come back home and teach you everything because you're just stupid and you didn't know anything, and now your kids are so much smarter than you. And they go, hey, uh, Dad, you just big dummy. You know, you've been sheltered here in Alabama, and you don't even know all these great things. Now, my kids haven't done that. They're still here, aren't they? <clears throat> and uh, they haven't done that. But ask, ask any of them if they've heard false teachings, and they'll tell you yes. Well, what if your children aren't prepared? They could be easily installed into this thing. You say, man, I can't even imagine that. Hitler himself did this. And you say, well, Hitler was a long time ago. What about a man by the name of Saddam Hussein? Saddam Hussein, who stood up and was actually lived in Babylon and had his palace built on the shores there or on the edges of that river and also declared himself his greatest role model and believed to be ancestor was no other than Nebi himself. He patterned his whole life after Nebuchadnezzar. And so the Babylonian system was still going on, even in the days when I was a young man, even in the days now. Listen, why in the world would God let this happen? Brandon, you go ahead and come on. That'll give them some comfort to know that I'm wrapping up. Why in the world would God do this? Seriously, look around at what's going on with us. Why would God, Brother Mitch, have you ever prayed just, Lord, I don't know what you're doing. I trust you. But why does it have to be this way? Even when Jesus died on the cross, I, I pray that all the time. Lord, I don't know why it took him. I don't know why he had to go through all that. But I don't know what you're doing. I don't understand everything, but I trust it. And I trust your plan. There's a reason. God's not giving up on Israel. And God's not giving up on us. 
God's not giving up on this world. If there's ever a God who is gracious, it's our God. And he told them, 70 years you're going to go through this. And you're not going to miss one year. I'm not going to hold out. I'm not going to look at the 67th year and go, well, you know what? You've done enough. You can come out of timeout now. God says, no, I'm a true and just father. And I said 70, you're going to pay back those Sabbath years that you didn't pay. And I'm not taking it back. And you go, why in the world would this happen? The Bible says in Luke chapter 21, Jesus gives us a little glimpse of it. Look at verse 24 if you want to write it down. He says that Jerusalem shall be trodden down by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. The Bible talks about that there was a time of the Israelites. And when they went into captivity, Sister Sherry, through the Babylonian people, their kingdom ceased. There was never another king to sit on the throne that was appointed by God. They were appointed by Nebuchadnezzar and false gods in other nations. God said, there will not be another king until Israel repents, and then I will send the king that will forever reign on his throne, and it's Jesus Christ. But God says, and even God's son says, and even Paul says, there's a time of the Gentiles. I want you to know something. You're a Gentile. Unless you have Jewish blood, you're Gentile. And today we ought to give praise to God. Not for the fact that Israel fall, but because of their fall, we are blessed. Because God has a time of the Gentiles. The Bible says, you ever heard a preacher preach before and say that, that when that last soul that God knows will receive him, God's going to come back, send his son back. You ever heard an old preacher say that before? That last soul accepts him, God knows it's going to be done. All I know is, is that when the fullness of the Gentiles have come in, that when God has finished redeeming the Gentiles and doing that, that when the fullness comes, the Son is coming back, and that all of Revelation is going to take place. It's going to happen. I don't know if that person will be saved in Belize or in some island somewhere or here in North Island. That'd be pretty cool. Hey, do you accept Christ? Yes. Boom. Done. Yes. Amen. You know what I mean? It would be over with everything. Jesus says that the time of the Gentiles will be fulfilled. What if Nebuchadnezzar thought, Andrew, that he was bringing in slaves to serve him and to eventually worship him? But what if God, because God was controlling all things, Neb was what? My servant, Jeremiah said. What if it isn't about God bringing them into slavery and into worship? But what if it's God sending in some secret agents? What if it's God sending in his people to a Gentile nation because Israel has rejected them and now the times of the Gentiles are here, Brother Rouse, and God's sending in some secret gospel agents? Huh? What? I'd like to have that, that theme music. Secret agent, man. They're coming in. They may think, listen, that's why the scripture in Psalms that they couldn't sing because of their chastisement. But when they get in there and they're indoctrinated and infatuated throughout this whole scripture of Daniel, what happens? People are influenced by these people. People are changed by these young boys, amen? Because why? Because the word of God, the gospel of God is good. It'll break any heart. What if God wasn't allowing him to take away boys as slaves, but what if he was pulling them in? Daniel did these things. Write these things down, and then I may let you go. Number one, 
Write them down because you need to teach these to your kids. But first, you got to practice these as adults. Daniel purposed in his heart to be faithful. He determined in his heart. You know what purposed in his heart to be faithful means? It means Daniel, Brother Ricky, made a decision to be faithful. I'm going to close, I promise. Daniel 1, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat nor the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Daniel said, I'm not going to do it, but I want you to listen and remember this. Daniel made a decision and a request. He didn't make a demand and a revolt. He didn't start yelling at them, I ain't eating that, I ain't drinking that. No, he made the decision, I'm not going to defile myself. I'll just starve myself is what he was saying. But Brother Matt, what he said was he requested from that prince, from Ashpenaz, that he could do it another way. Daniel purposed to be faithful. God, number two, God proved to be faithful. Teach them to your kids. God proved it. If you put God to the test of faithfulness, God will prove himself faithful. God, in verse 9, now God had brought Daniel into favor and tender love. That means goodwill. And with the prince of the eunuchs. Because of his humble heart and obedient heart, God brought Daniel into favor. Daniel didn't bring himself into favor. God did it. God did it. God did it. Amen? Here's the third thing. Daniel made a plan to be faithful. And here's where we trip up. You need to teach all people, yourself first and others, plan to be faithful. Plan it out. How will you be faithful? If someone says this, what will you do? The Bible says in Daniel chapter number 1, look at verse 10. And the prince of the eunuch said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king hath appointed your meat and your drink. For why should he see your faces worse than the children who are of your sort? He says, then shall you make me endanger my head to the king. He said, the king will kill me if you don't look right. He says, then said Daniel to Melzar, or to his servant. That word actually is translated butler. Uh, master of wine, whom the prince of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah. Look what he says. Prove your servants, I beseech thee, ten days. Plan. I made a plan. Just give me ten days. If I'm not good in ten days, then we'll do it your way. But Daniel planned to be faithful. And he said, Give us pulse to eat and water to drink, and then let the countenance be looked upon before thee and the countenance of the children that eat of the portions of the king's meat. As thou seest, deal with thy servants. And he consented to them in this matter and proved them for ten days. Listen, here's the last thing. God persisted to be faithful. Daniel did what? He made a purpose to be faithful, and God proved to be faithful. But then Daniel made a plan, and God continued, persisted, to be faithful. Listen to these words as we close. At the end of the ten days, their countenance appeared fair and fatter in flesh than all the children which did eat the portions of the king's meat. They were better off. Look at this. Then that butler or that servant, Melcher, says, took away the portion of their meat and the wine that they should drink and gave them pulse and asked for these four children. It says, God gave them knowledge and skill in all learning and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now the end of the days that the king had said that he should bring them in, then the prince of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebi. And it says, And the king communed with them, and among all, or them all, was none found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore stood they before the king, and in all matters of wisdom and understanding that the king inquired of them, the king found them out to be ten times better than all of the magicians and astrologers that was in all of his realm. He found them fatter. He found them smarter. 
He found them better in all ways. But look at that one verse one more time. It says, I think it's in verse 16, 17. It says, God gave it to them. When we are faithful to God, God persists to be faithful to us. Listen to these scriptures if you wanted to write it down. Deuteronomy 7, verse 9. Therefore know that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God. Listen to what 1 Corinthians says in chapter 1, verse 9. God is faithful, of whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says this. There has no temptation taken you, but such as common to man. Every man has walked in your same shoes. Look at these words. But God is faithful, that when you're tempted... He will not allow you to be attempted above that you are able to stand, but he will make a way out. Amen. So what do we learn? God is faithful. And when we are faithful, God continues to be faithful. So now that we know who Daniel is and we know what God is doing with him, I ask you this question, how faithful are you? Have you purposed in your heart to be faithful to God? And have you made plans? Do you make daily plans to be faithful? Listen. You want to overcome temptation of sin? Make plans to get away from it. What do you mean? I'm not going to use just the old-fashioned thing, but if you go out on a date, you go out on a date, you ought to make plans not to go anywhere where you're alone. You ought to make plans. I've had to try my best to drill this, even into my own voice. You have to try to make, and, and, and not always we get it right. You have to stay away from dark places. You have to stay away from alone places. Listen, go bowling. Why go bowling? People see you. I can't stand it. I hate it whenever you hear about this one and this one and this one and this. And well, they were parked over here or they were doing this over here. You shouldn't do that. And you know what? The whole problem is, is not that you're a bad person. The problem is, is you are a bent person towards sin. And before us parents forget who we were, we all grew up with one another, basically. You can all look at me and say, I know what you did. Yeah, and you should be quiet. Right? But this is what you do. You planned poorly. I've planned poorly. If you are tempted between the hours of 1 and 2 or 3 to do something, you know what? You need to make plans to be somewhere else. Here's the last thing. You said, you said that before, Brother I just don't believe you anymore. It is. It's the last thing. It's, it's verse 21. God persisted to be faithful. It's right there in the pudding, Brother Mitch. Daniel continued even under the first year of King Cyrus. Everybody see what's that mean? What it means is, is in the worst of times, our God is faithful. It means in the worst of times, God will be with you as you serve him. But that didn't mean anything to me, Brother Steve. Was it, who cares if he lived that long? What that means, Brother Ronnie, is that Daniel lived through the whole 70 years. He made it all the way up to the day of delivery when Cyrus came in and delivered him out. And what we see at the beginning of this book, Brother Matt, in the beginning chapter of this book, is God says, Daniel, I will not forget you, son, in the worst times. It's going to be the worst times Israel ever walked through, but I am not going to forget you. I'm going to be faithful to you. And it says Daniel made it all the way through. You know what I have heard? In this year, 365 days, I preached a message, 365 days to the day 
apart from when we shut down. You know what I've heard this year? I'm worried about my kids and my grandkids and how are they going to make it when things get bad. You teach them as much as you can of those four things that I told you. Teach them how they ought to live, but how God is to us. Teach them how they ought to plan to be faithful and how God's going to persist to be as long as you make plans. And you'll understand that you can tell them no matter what you go through, no matter what university you go through, no matter what divorce or trial that you go through, God will be with you through every bit of it. Let me pray for you. Lord, we love you. We thank you.